Well, welcome once again. Our text is going to be in 1 Corinthians 16 again this morning, but as you're turning there, just have a few of you stand up. I know that uh, we have more than just one who's leaving. I know Lacey is leaving, but who else is? Some of the college students are graduating and headed out. Just stand up. Yeah. Great. Wow. I'm going to go ahead and pray for you who are standing up. So just stay standing, and we won't bring you up here, but yeah. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have to fellowship together, to learn of you, to know you. Um, Lord, thank you for uh, steadfast, and especially those who come here, and uh, those some who are in college, some who are in career, uh, some who um, are life's unexpected challenges or are having them move, and some of them are planning to move just uh, because they were here for a temporary time. But we're grateful for the time that we've had to be together, and I pray, Lord, that you would take, uh, you'd use these saints of yours as they, as they go and are transplanted into another church, that you would, they would take what they've learned here and use it for your glory, for your name's sake, and help us to continue to sharpen one another here as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Be sure to greet them as they go out and uh, tell them to come back and visit, like Peter, once every eight years. Good to have you. Yeah. Um, So our text this morning is 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14, and I'm going to go ahead and read that, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 and 14. A shorter text this morning, but very full. It says this, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Well, we come to this text towards the end of this letter, and um, Paul just kind of summarizes a lot of his admonitions for the church in Corinth. As I was preparing, I was thinking about a pioneer in the Protestant missionary endeavor from the 1700s named Nicholas Zinzendorf. And Zinzendorf is famous for uh, having said to those who were going out, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. What is it about that statement, that quote, that stands out to you, that, that kind of jars us a little bit in our own mindset today? The be forgotten. Why is that? Why is that surprising? Besides the fact that we remember Zinzendorf for saying that, which is kind of ironic that uh, he's famous for saying "be forgotten." Uh, talk to me. We want to be remembered. There's something in us that we think about ourselves, and we think about um, people wanting to remember us, and. And to a certain extent, I mean, it's good to remember others and it's good for us to, but I think that uh, pride is something that is so deceptive that when we uh, kind of put ourselves forward um, and as Christians, it, it always detracts from Christ when you're trying to promote yourself. I think there's a basic premise of Christian life and that is the more your life is dominated by you, the less that Christ is exalted. To say it another way, 
If you're a Christian, the less people see of you, that is your desires, your selfish attitudes, the more they will see of Christ. And that's fundamental to Christian living. This is why John the Baptist, when he was paving the way for Christ to come, uh, baptizing people, preaching about the Messiah, having crowds of people coming and listening to him, he began his earthly ministry and he said in John 3 verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Paul was so convinced that Christ must be exalted that he considered himself in some ways to be dead already. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, he said in Galatians 2.20. But Christ lives in me. He said, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In 2 Corinthians 13.4, Paul said, For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. When you're a little child, you are familiar with the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. Um, Little ones to him belong, they are what? Weak, but he is strong. And so from a young age, We're thinking about those who follow Christ are weak, are not to be shown, uh, demonstrated your own strengths or not to be self-promoting. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God had told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in Weakness, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So this basic precept is often forgotten, I think, because everything in our culture speaks to us that we need to be seen, that we need to be seen as important, that we need to be promoted, that we need to be appreciated, that it's about us, that we should be the focus. And yet when you give your life to Christ, you literally give it to him so that he becomes the focus of all you do. And then there's that old sinful tendency to try and put yourself in that place. It's something we all struggle with, that flesh that's rising up in competition against Jesus Christ. And the question is asked, who will win the day? And if you are have devoted to living for Christ, he must win the day. So we come to this passage that is full of five imperatives, five commands, verses 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians 16, that are really fundamental for Christian living. So I've entitled this Commands for Christian Living, for lack of a more catchy title. Um, And we look at these five final commands in his letter to the Corinthians that will help each one of us, help us to have Christ prevail in our lives. And the first one is that a Christ-prevailing life is alert. We need to be alert. Take a look at verse 13. It begins with, be on the alert. This is um, a word which in the original means to be awake or to be watchful. Some versions translate this, be on your guard. It's a word that's used over 20 times in the New Testament, and it's essential for Christians. And the Corinthian church, it makes sense that Paul would use this word and remind them because they had many failures. There were many dangers and doctrines uh, that they had let, the doctrines that they had let slip and dangers that they allowed to come in, influences that seemed to infiltrate their church. 
There was a lot of apathy. There was a lot of sin. This is a church that Paul had been rebuking throughout the letter in chapters 1 through 2. He rebuked them for some of them for preferring worldly wisdom as opposed to godly wisdom. Chapter 5, they were rebuked for allowing immorality in the church, such immorality that was not even accepted among pagans. Chapter 7, chapter 6 reveals that they were suing one another, taking each other to court over things that were, they shouldn't have been. Chapter 7, they needed to be rebuked because they thought it was more spiritual to be celibate, and they had a misunderstanding of chastity, and some of them were actually divorcing their spouses, trying to get a more spiritual spouse, thinking that that would please God. Uh, Chapter 10, Paul reminds them to flee from idolatry. Chapter 11, he rebukes them because they were getting drunk at the Lord's table. This is a church that was anything but alert. They were allowing themselves to be affected and influenced by the world. So one of his, what's interesting is it wasn't so much the world that was influencing them as it was themselves. It was coming from within the church. And so he closes his book with these admonitions beginning with be on the alert or watch out. And I think the danger in many churches, even churches with good biblical teaching, is that we neglect to be alert. We become complacent. Um, I mean, how is it that a church that was taught by the Apostle Paul who is a, and a gifted teacher like Apollos and Peter obviously had some influence in this church, uh, how was it that they could uh, have such great teaching and yet have so many problems amongst themselves? And so we need to learn from their mistakes. And I think one of their mistakes is that they thought to themselves, we've had such good teaching We don't need to guard ourselves. We don't need to be on the alert. Isn't it ironic that you're most likely to fail when you think that you will never fail in that area? That we are most vulnerable when we think that we are not vulnerable? If you think, I I will never have a moral failure like so-and-so, be on your guard. Or... I'm beyond that old sin. I won't do that anymore. Or stealing is no longer a temptation for me. Or lying isn't something. Whatever it is, there are... (laughs) You know what overconfidence sounds like? Ungodly overconfidence sounds like this with five words. I will never do that. In fact, I think that... um, And... and, uh, I don't know if this is just in the movies, TV detective shows or whatever, but, but... one of the ways that interrogation officers can tell that somebody is lying is if they said, I would never do that. I would never do that. Such an, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, a, a defensive stature um, reveals something about your heart because we're all capable of doing whatever sin we hear of. We all have the same capacity. This is why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So we need to be commanded every day to be alert. We need to remind ourselves to be alert. And let me just try and and, and give three simple ways to be alert as we think about this first command here. Um, Three watchful ways you can be alert. The first one is, Be watchful for the Lord's return. 
Be watchful for the Lord's, Lord's return. I, I said that this, this term, be alert, is found 20 times in the New Testament. Several times it's found um, speaking about the future return of the Lord. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 and 10, Colossians 4, 2, that word is found. And it's talking about the Lord's return. And isn't it, isn't it important that the end really matters, knowing that he will come back, having that hope? Being alert about it helps you today because if you really believe, as Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, that one day there will be a future resurrection, that you will be raised from the grave, that you will be living forever, that you have eternal life, then that helps you to keep your focus on things that matter to the Lord and, don't get, and you're not getting caught up in things of this world. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1 through 6 says this, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or darkness. Verse 6 of 1 Thessalonians 5 says this. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. That word, let us watch, same thing, be on the alert. So one way is to be prayerful, joyful, mindful about the future, that there is, that the one who comes will come and make everything right, and he will take those who are his and take us away from this world into a place where there is no more sin, is no more death, is no more crying, is no more pain, is no more suffering, is no more injustice. And so that helps us to have the right attitude when we are being treated unjustly. Second way to be watchful is be watchful for the enemy. This word is used in Scripture to talk about the devil, that we are to be alert about his ways and the influence he has on our society. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober of spirit, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Same word there, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to desire, to devour, sorry, to devour. So he desires to desire, no, he desires to devour. Um, And he uses temptation. He uses the course of this world, which is influenced by him, according to Ephesians 2. Um, Remember that when it comes to temptation, we are to be on the alert, remindful, like in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, that there is the way of escape. The way of escape is to endure temptation. Romans 6, 14 also tells us, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace, which means that there is no habitual sin that can define your life, that you can be free from any habitual sin in this life. You are not to be held captive by it. And I think one of the devil's lies is to think you will never escape this sin. It's master over you. But when you yield your life to Christ, those sins which used to define you, like sins listed in 1 Corinthians 6, and later it says, such were some of you, no longer defines you, but Christ can define you. And though you will struggle against sin the rest of your life, there isn't a life-dominating sin that should define you. And if there is, one of the keys to overcoming it is realizing that you have been freed from it and it should not dominate your life. And that through the the grace of God, the fellowship with other believers, the strengthening that comes 
from his word, you can be free of any life-dominating sin. That is what's called the sanctification process. We need to be alert. We need to be alert when it comes to our behavior and be watchful for the enemy. Not only be watchful for the Lord's return, but be watchful for the enemy. And thirdly, be watchful for evil influence. Be watchful for evil influence. Acts 20, verse 29 and uh, through 31 says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. It's that same word. Be on the alert. Watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. So this is a daily thing to be on the alert. And this should be part of our prayer life. If you have a prayer journal, I think right up there at the top should be, Lord, help me to be alert this day. Help me to be mindful. Help me to be alert about the future of your coming. Help me alert about the ways of the devil. And help me to be alert about evil influence. It's significant that the Corinthians were influenced so much from within. And I think that we have that same danger. We have such great teaching here. And it's easy to sit back and say, well, the teaching's so great. I've been so well taught that... I don't need to be really mindful of those things. That will never happen to me. Be on the alert. So that's why Paul wrote, be alert. For the same reason, he gives him a second command in verse 13, and that is, be grounded in the truth. A Christ-prevailing life is grounded in truth. It's not only alert, but it's grounded in truth. Paul says in verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. That word, the faith there, speaking of the body of truth that has been delivered and revealed in scriptures. Paul uses the same word in, sorry, uh, Jude uses it the same way when he writes, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once once for all delivered to the saints. The faith, that is the truth. And um, I think we take it for granted sometimes, as I was just saying, that it's great to be grounded in the truth, but stand firm in it. Back to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul had just written them in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and in which you stand. So there's this constant reminder of standing, being firm. End of verse 15. uh, Chapter 15 starts with standing in the truth and ends with, in verse 58, being steadfast in the truth. Uh, someone once said, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And there is some truth to that, especially when it comes to the Scripture. So um, you'd be like the, the, the Ephesians, or like it's talked about in Ephesians, where those who were not standing firm in the truth were tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, Ephesians 4.14. The first church that I pastored was... Um, uh, was a, an interesting group of people. I, um, I was a young, I was 29 when I started pastoring. I took this church in South Africa, and pretty much the church could be divided up into thirds. A third of them were out of the Netherlands Reformed Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, and many of them felt burned by that church. Um, I remember one of the men in our church had come out of that church, and he realized that he was talking to one of the elders in his church and the elder could not articulate the gospel. 
And so he was concerned about that. And so he went to the Dormini, the pastor of the church, and he said, uh, I'm concerned about this elder because I'm not sure if he's saved. He doesn't, can't really talk or define or articulate the gospel. And the pastor looks at him and says, how can you say he's not a Christian? He's a child of the covenant. He was baptized into this church as a child, and therefore he's a part of our covenant community. And, and this church, not all Dutch Reformed churches are like this, but in South Africa, many of the Dutch Reformed churches had become so much like a state church that there were lots of people in there who were not believers, even elders and pastors. And so those who were getting saved in those churches through the word of God were becoming disillusioned by church. And they came out and some of them uh, started meeting and they joined together with a second group of people. I call them the rejects from the charismatic movement because uh, the health and wealth prosperity gospel was hitting South Africa very hard in the early 90s. And, and, and so these people were led to believe or told by those in their church they weren't real Christians because they weren't speaking in tongues uh, and doing some other things that, that, that was characteristic of those churches. So they were made to feel like second-class citizens. So they came out of the church kind of disillusioned and a little bit like, wow, the word of God wasn't really being taught um, or wasn't being taught correctly. And then there was a third group of people in the church that we called the hippies because they were, all had long hair. They were new believers. And a lot of them had, uh, there was a whole group of people uh, who, um, uh, one particular high school had this big kind of explosion of kids coming to faith in Christ. And so we had the hippies, the rejects, and the disillusioned from the Dutch Reformed. So that, that, was, that was the church that I came to. And it was, it was interesting because um, uh, they were so focused on the truth, especially these other two groups. We've got to know the truth. We've got to study the truth. That um, they were, uh, they almost forgot really the fifth imperative, which I'm going to skip down to because I really feel like it's not a fifth imperative. It's one that permeates the first four. So take a look at verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. It's significant that that comes right after these imperatives because if you are on your guard, but you don't have love, and if you're standing firm in the truth, but you don't have love, uh, it looks something like this. And, 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 and I'm going to use my first congregation, which, which grew in, in, in maturity, and, and I grew. I mean, it was great for me. I loved it. But I remember the first year that I was there, uh, it came towards Christmas time. Now, I'd, I was come from Grace Church, where we've got you know, trees and, 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 you know, a thousand poinsettias. And I mean, the whole, the, the wreaths, the size of, you know, dump truck tires. I mean, it's just like unbelievable, you know, uh, <clears throat> decorations and my first Christmas there at this church in, in Johannesburg, uh, some of the men came to me and said, yeah, we don't, we don't usually meet uh, at Christmas time. In fact, it would be a good time maybe for you to take some uh, vacation time because we just usually close the doors the Sundays around Christmas. And I'm like, you're kidding, right? <laughs> and they're like, no. And one of them handed me a book. And the title of the book is The Pagan Festivals of Christmas and Easter. And so I'm reading, and I'm like, wow, these people. And they're like, nowhere in Scripture does it say we should celebrate Christmas. It's not a, not a biblical thing. And nowhere in Scripture does it say we'd celebrate Easter. Those are extra biblical. And we have been burned so much by people who added things to the Bible. We don't want to do anything that the Bible doesn't say. So 
we just don't even open our doors. We just kind of shut our doors that time of year. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So that first Christmas, you know what I did? I went on vacation because they told me I should go on vacation. And, you know, there's a rule when you're 29 and you're a pastor, you really shouldn't try to make major changes. And so uh, I went on vac- had a great time. Cape Town was beautiful. Um, but the next year I started teaching early on. And I had a series of messages. Is it wrong to memorialize the birth of Christ? Is it wrong to memorialize the resurrection of Christ? You know, and I got a giant Christmas tree, and I put it in my house, and I had people come over. And not one of them came in and said to me, you know, are, are you worshiping the Canaanite love goddess, that the, uh, the goddess of fertility that that tree really represents? Not one of them said that. At Easter time, I had big chocolate eggs, and nobody said, oh, Ishtar came down. The Babylonian love goddess came down from an egg into heaven. And is that what you're celebrating? None of them confused me with that because it's so far from our culture. Those were pagan holidays which have been redeemed by Christians. And the question is, is it wrong to memorialize the birth of Christ? No. Is it wrong to memorialize the resurrection of Christ? I would say that Sundays are called the Lord's Day because it is the day that he resurrected, and we do memorialize the resurrection of Christ every Sunday. In fact, we should every day. And so if it's not wrong to memorialize his resurrection, I would say it's not wrong to memorialize his birth and celebrate that, his coming, his advent, and therefore I, I don't see it as sin. I think we have freedom to do it. And, and, and so we had a Christmas, we were open around Christmas, and eventually we had started having Christmas Day services, no matter when it fell in the week, and the church grew through that, and it was, it was good. But I really, <coughs> excuse me, I appreciated it that, that this congregation wanted to know what the Bible said. But I mention that because I think sometimes we could be so firm about the truth that we're not loving, and when people come and visit our church... They, they don't have that welcomeness. It's almost like, hey, who are you? You're new. You know, you got to jump through five hoops before we'll acknowledge you, and, and, and then we'll start to welcome you, and, but then we're going to test you to see if you really love the truth because we're about the truth. And so I love it that in this passage, he talks about being on your guard, um, being firm in the truth, but let all that you do be done in love. Um, so, um, as we think about the Corinthians, um, there were those who had not stirred, stood firm in God's word and they were corrupt. It perverted their worship. We've seen this throughout in first Corinthians 12 verses two and three. There were those who, um, their worship had become so perverted that they were cursing Jesus and calling it worship. That's how bad it got when that they weren't on their guard, they weren't standing in the truth. And Paul writes them in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 3, you know when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one could say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So far off were they that they were cursing Jesus in their worship service, and somehow that was accepted. And don't think that we can't be off that much as well. And we could be grateful for these reminders. So um, 
we've seen that they needed to be on the alert. They need to be grounded in the truth. A third command in our passage is to be courageous. Verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, and act like men. (gasps) Yep, that's what it says, act like men. I love this phrase. It's one word in the Greek. It, It comes from the root word for man, and it basically can be translated man up. Man up. Act like men. I have a man up speech that I give. I give it, uh, some of you have received this speech, but uh, it's, I typically give it to young men. The, here's the typical scenario. This is not an uncommon scenario. This is a scenario where you have uh, a guy who's dating a girl and things start off well, and then somehow during the relationship, um, she decides to get cold feet and he turns into a puppy dog. And so, he, like, like, if she's, like, thinking, oh, I'm not sure about this relationship, you'd look at him, and he's just down. He's like, oh, like a little whimpering puppy dog. He looks like that. But if she's like, actually, I do like you, he's like, okay, let's go play. And then she, he's like, like a puppy dog, right? And he can't figure out what's wrong, why she keeps on not liking and liking him, and it's because no woman wants to marry a puppy dog. And so I give him the man-up speech. And in this man-up speech... Uh, in some cases, I tell them, you need to break off this relationship because you're following. You're not leading. You're following. And, uh, you know, the guy's like, but that's going to be hard. Yeah, this is where you earn your chest hair. That's why it's called a man-up speech. This is, it's going to be hard because being a man is difficult. And so, you know, you have to do this. You have to be firm, and you're probably such a nice guy, you can't even break up firm enough. She's going to think you're not even breaking up with her. So be definitive. I myself had to give this speech to my wife because I was a puppy dog. That's why I know what it looks like. And somebody told me I was a wimp, and I was such a nice guy, I couldn't even break up with her properly. And so she remembers I had three points. It's over. It's finished. We're history. (laughs) Those were the three points in my breakup speech. It was a good speech. No hugs. No hugs. Whenever, I, don't, I don't hug people I'm broken up with, right? <laughs> I was trying to be a man. Um, and uh, you think about this. It's important. It's important because if she's not the one, there's no point in you being together. If she is the one, she needs to see that you have self-control, self-denial, and that you're following Christ with your whole heart, and that your happiness is not focused on whether she is following you or not. Your happiness is focused on whether you are following Christ. And so if you're following Christ with all your might and all your vigor, and you're not looking back just thinking, is she following, is she following? That's who she wants to marry. She wants to marry a godly man. She wants to run after that. She wants to follow that. But she doesn't want somebody who's looking to her for their security. So we know that young men need to act like men. But what's interesting in this passage is that he uses a second person plural imperative. You're like, oh, that is interesting. (laughs) Second person plural is you all. He's not just speaking to the men. He's speaking to the women as well. You say, I knew it. I knew that we were going to get into this self-identity, gender identity stuff. And 
this has nothing to do with some woke liberal preschool program. Okay, this is this is not this is not about gender identification. But Paul does tell everyone in the church to act like men because he has reminded them to be alert, to be firm, to be courageous, and he's saying act like men should act. That is, they're courageous. Men are known for doing courageous things, running into a battle. Uh, You know, not being concerned about other people. Someone who is self-disciplined, has self-control, has self-denial, and is trying to exalt Christ wholeheartedly in their life. You know, you think of... um, I, I think that people in our society... We get caught up. Why does he say act like men? Isn't that stereotypical? Paul often spoke in stereotypes. When he says you should have faith, he says have faith like who? Like a child, like little children. Why? Because little children believe wholeheartedly. And when you're standing firm, you should act like men. Why? Because men should be known for their courage and leading And being strong, but also loving, because love permeates all of these commands. And so we have this this imperative to act like men, which goes right along with the next one, be strong. And uh, a Christ-prevailing life is strengthened. It's strengthened. It's interesting. It's another imperative. It's another command. It is a present passive imperative. You say, what does that mean? Well, remember, remember active and passive verbs? No. Okay. So an active verb, Johnny hit the ball. Hit is an active verb. Uh, we would say passive would be the ball hit Johnny. Okay. Johnny did the action. It's active. He received the action. It is passive. But in Greek, the verbs can show you whether it's active or passive all in the word And so this is really a command to be strengthened. Be strengthened. It's not saying be strong in your own strength. It's saying be strong with the strength that you are with which you are strengthened by the one who strengthens you. That is the idea that you are passively being strengthened, but you are commanded to do it. It's an interesting thing, a passive imperative. Courage, strength, backbone are all characteristics that are really lacking in many churches today, and they're so necessary. So when you think about the context here, and we talked some about this last week, I just want to go back and think about some of that as well. But, you know, um, Paul is someone who had been slandered, attacked, mistreated, underappreciated, full of hardship. How did he respond to that? He was exactly like this. He was on the alert. He was standing firm in the faith. He was acting like a man, and he was being strengthened. His first, he first came to Corinth on his second missionary journey. Second missionary journey, he visited Corinth, that area of sort of middle Greece there where the two two, uh, main uh, parts of Greece come together with a thin strip of land, the Isthmus right there. That's where Corinth was at. It was a navy town, it was a shipping town, and he was there for 18 months on that second missionary journey. But shortly after he leaves, he hears about their immorality. And so he writes them a letter 
confronting them. We don't have that letter. We call this 1 Corinthians, but we know that there was a 1 Corinthians before 1 Corinthians. This is the 1 Corinthians that we have. But there was another letter. We know that because in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And remember, he had written that, and they had mis, mis, uh, um, uh, interpreted that. He, he, had, he had told them not to associate with immoral, peop- immoral people, and they had taken that to mean nobody outside of the church. And he's saying, no, I'm not saying isolate. How can you be in the world and, and, and not, not actually associate with people who are immoral? But he was talking about people who were in the church who were acting immorally, and he clears that out in 1 Corinthians 5. But in response to that letter, we know that they wrote him a letter for clarification on a number of issues. And that's why he wrote 1 Corinthians, to answer those issues. And we see, see that all the way from chapter 7, now concerning about the things which you wrote, is how he opens up in 1 Corinthians 7, 1. And there are six now concernings that kind of outline chapters 7 through 16. And so we have 1 Corinthians really responding to them in their correspondence. Um, and it seems that we learned last week, we reminded that Paul, who wrote from Ephesus, was planning to travel up through Mesopotamia, up there where northern Greece, Philippi and Berea, Thessalonica, and then come down to lower Greece where Corinth was, and he wanted to spend the whole winter there. He wants to spend several months from there. But something happened. Someone tried to influence the church in, in Corinth away from Paul, and um, they were slandering his character. And so hearing of that news, Paul made a brief visit to Corinth. It didn't go well. That's why it was brief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he refers to that visit as the painful visit. So there was, a, there was something that happened. Um, there are different theories. I think the most likely one is that somebody uh, within the church was opposing Paul to his face and enswayed a bunch of people to stand up against Paul. And not only that, it appears as though those who were for Paul didn't even stand up to, to represent Paul. So Paul went away dejected, thinking to himself, they're, they're, they're throwing me out they're thro- and they're throwing all of the teaching out. And some false teacher or false teaching has crept in and that is what is influencing this church. And that's why it's the painful visit. Um, and so... We know from 2 Corinthians 4 and chapter 2 Corinthians 7 that he wrote another letter, which would be 3 Corinthians, right? Uh, And that's called the severe letter. We refer to it as the severe letter. Again, we don't have it today, but it's referred to in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4 and in 2 Corinthians 7, where Titus is mentioned as the one who brought the letter. Meanwhile, according to Acts 19, Paul's in Ephesus preaching Christ, waiting for a response from the Corinthians. And while he's there... There's a silversmith named Demetrius who's upset because so many people in Ephesus are coming to faith in Christ that it's hurting his idol-making business. That's a pretty good sign. When those who are making idols to false goddesses uh, aren't selling them and they think, it's because people aren't worshiping these anymore. They're worshiping the true God. And so they had kind of a riot They rose up against Paul and brought him before Roman officials. For two hours, they shouted, great is Diana of the Ephesians. They wanted Paul's blood. By the grace of God, he was not thrown in the arena then. He was not killed then, but the pressure forced him to leave Ephesus. And so he went north, headed up towards Mesopotamia, and he got to Troas, and that's where he met Titus. And Titus was coming back from Corinth. And he got good news. And we read about this in 2 Corinthians 7. Just turn with me to 2 Corinthians 7. Um, Keep your finger there in in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 7, 
verse 6. But God who comforts the depressed or the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Paul and his travel companions are in trust and they're comforted. Why? Because Titus came. Why did Titus came? Because he'd come back from Ephesus after he had gone again after the sorrowful uh, visit, the painful visit and the sorrowful letter. And then it says in verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing, your mourning and your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. So Paul has great joy because they have repented and they're zealous for Paul. They believe in him and they believe the truth that he taught. And the, uh, the false teacher is no longer somebody that they are, are, are following. And verse 8 says, for, I ca- for though I caused you sorrow in my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. But I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might suffer, not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that's according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. He didn't know whether they had godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. But they responded to his letter to them, and they were grieved, and they realized the error of their way, and they repented because they're true believers. And so he rejoiced in that, and this was good. But you look at this, this Paul was just in agony, not because of him, but because of the gospel. He did not want it preached in vain. And so Paul's filled with great joy, and he writes 2 Corinthians to them, which is actually 4th Corinthians because it's now the fourth letter, but don't worry about those numbers. So the uh, 2 Corinthians is, is the only inspired book to them, 28 chapters in, if you put them all together, uh, 20, say, sorry, uh, 16 and 12, 28 chapters. It's a huge book, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians together, uh, 28 chapters. It's a lot of writing to one church. And we could be grateful for that. And part of what Paul does in 2 Corinthians is he confronts those false teachers head on. And we see that in chapter 11, if you want to just skip over to chapter 11 of, of 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 11, I'll start in verse 12. He says, um, but what I'm doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as what we are in the matter of which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. So Paul points out that people infiltrated the church. They're really satanic. You've got to watch out for them. You've got to be on the alert. That's what's going on. We know that from the history, and it's, it's really amazing that in 1 Corinthians, he writes them and says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then that final one, let all you do be in love, be done in love. Um, the, uh, that's our fifth principle that we find here. A Christian prevailing life is loving. You can be alert, but if you're not doing it out of love for others, your life 
and your alertment can, can, can distract from really what it should be. Uh, you can be unloving in your alertness. You can be grounded in the truth, but your firmness can be interpreted as harshness and dogmatism rather than loving the truth and speaking the truth in love. You can be courageous, but real manhood is bold enough to demonstrate love first and foremost for Christ and following him and secondly to others and then yourself last. You can be strengthened spiritually. And I think that's really what he means by be, be strong is grow. Be strengthened. Being strengthened is spiritual growth. So don't be satisfied where you're at. Desire to grow more. And that also needs to be done in love. Because 1 Peter 4.8, as Peter said, and above all things, keep a fervent love for one another. Love will cover over a multitude of sins. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. The whole design for you to grow spiritually and to do it in love involves other believers. And as you manifest your love towards them and they manifest their love towards you, it should result in spiritual strength. But even when there is discord or uh, confusion or arguments or sin against one another, God also uses that to strengthen you, which is why love needs to be a part of all of that, all of those events that go on. So these are the five commands we have here for Christian living at the end of First Corinthians, I, we have we have some time left. Any questions about what we said today? Okay, Juniors has questions. Yeah, it's a it's a rich it's a rich passage. I want to slow down. I want to go through these. They're written in staccato style, but they're worth taking time and reminding ourselves of these things. So, no questions. Act like men. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for the opportunity we have to look at your truth. These are easy commands to understand, but they're not easy to put in practice. And so I do pray that you will help us, Father, to be grounded in your truth, to be on the alert, to act like men that is courageous, and to be growing spiritually and to let love permeate everything we do. We commit this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.